So here we are in the book of Ezekiel, uh, chapter 37. Look at verse number 1. Now the Bible says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and carried me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones, and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. Verse 3 says, And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, thou knowest. Again he said unto me, Prophesy unto these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and, bring, and I will bring life, or bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So I, Ezekiel, prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then said he, God, unto me, prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet an exceeding great army. And then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they, the house of Israel, say, Our bones are dried, and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore, back to um, Ezekiel, Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves, and cause you to come up out of your graves, and bring you into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am the Lord, when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, and ye shall live, and I shall place you in your own land, then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you again for allowing us to be here. We thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you for your word. And we ask you to bless it. Bless this time, Lord. Bless all that we do here, Lord, with your presence, your power, and uh, give us what only you can give us. And Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is probably, this chapter here, these first 14 verses, is probably the most famous, most known passages from the book of Ezekiel. Maybe the other one about the wheel in the middle of the wheel. You know, maybe you heard that one. But how many of y'all heard about dry bones? Y'all heard about this. There's even songs about it, right? Dry bones. I won't sing it. Um, but um, at least one song. So, and to understand this passage, literally, kind of like we talked about during Sunday school, as we should, we read right away that the hand of the Lord, look at verse number one, the hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord carried me away in the Spirit of the Lord. So our literal understanding, our literal interpretation tells us that Ezekiel was in the Spirit. Very clearly, God provided a vision for Ezekiel to convey some literal truths. But Ezekiel, this is interesting, and a little different than the majority of John the Apostle's vision, Ezekiel was more than just a spectator. He got to play along. 
He didn't put Ezekiel in front of a big screen television and say, look at this. Remember we talked about Daniel? I guess it's been a couple years, and it's like God did this to Daniel. Look at the future. Oh, that's enough. That's enough. You know, don't write that down. You know, but to Ezekiel, he brought him into a vision, brought him into this place, and Ezekiel was more than a spectator. He was a part of it, a part of it. It speaks of a time that's maybe beyond the life of Ezekiel, but we will see in this text, it also speaks of a time within the life of Ezekiel. And that's many times how prophecy works here. And this can be seen, I think, in the Lord's words to Ezekiel in verse number 12. Look at verse number 12 again. Verse number 12 says, Therefore I prophesy and say unto them. So this is back in reality, if you will, not from the vision, not that the vision was not real, but God tells him now, go to the people of Israel. Go to the whole house of Israel. So God used a vision, a figure, if you will, to preach a, and teach a literal truth. And it speaks of a time within the life of Ezekiel. So there is an immediate application in the text for Ezekiel and to the nation of Israel. And our understanding of this, knowing that it's in time, helps us aid in how we apply it to us in a greater sense, maybe. And we'll look at these things. In context, we must be reminded that this passage was written, not to us, but to the Jews. And not just to the Jews, but the Jews in exile, to the Jews in Babylon. Therefore, the first truth I would like to highlight this morning has to do more with why this vision was needed. Why did God send this vision to Ezekiel? What was the purpose of this? What was God trying to convey? And, and what, was he, what was the foundation behind this? And I want to point out, I hope this is clear uh, to you in the text, but the first thing we want to look at this morning, first of all, it's his namesake. That's what we're going to talk about. And point number one, the product of ungodliness. And I say all that to say this, they were there in, in exile, away from the Holy Land, and they were not living right. And we're going to look at why God had to send this vision because of their spiritual condition. As we looked at last week, the Jews were taken captive again by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar, or to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. But who orchestrated all of that? Did Nebuchadnezzar? God orchestrated that. God said, he's going to come. You need to surrender to him, and you need to go willingly and peacefully to Babylon. This is my punishment. You're going to go. And why did God send him? Why Why did God send Nebuchadnezzar to take them? Well, we talked a little bit about it last week. As a nation, Israel was not doing right. God had grown tired of their godless culture, which by contrast was first a godly culture that He created for them. They were His people. So get this now, the godlessness of God's people was without a doubt the entire reason they went into exile and the whole reason they were taken away in the first place. That's a, that's a phrase that it's hard to get a hold of sometimes. The godlessness of God's people. We can probably park there for a long time. The godliness of God's, the godlessness of God's people. We know from the books of Daniel, from Esther, parts of Jeremiah, Isaiah, and of course Ezekiel, that the Jews still struggled to be faithful during the exile. God says, I'm doing this. I'm doing this because you've not done this. You've not been godly. You've been ungodly. You've been doing a whole lot of wrong things. I'm going to send you here. And while they're there, you know, we talked about Jeremiah's letter. They're like, oh, the Lord's done for God. God sends them a letter, says, I've not forgotten you. But even then, 
they kind of fail. In fact, take your Bible and go back to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 48. And you can mark it there. Don't lose Ezekiel. We're going to come back to there. Mark your place in Isaiah as well, because we're going to come back to there and read a couple more verses. God here in Isaiah is speaking to Israel during their exile through Isaiah. And I want you to look. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Look at verse number 4. Because I knew, this is God to them through Isaiah to the Jews in in exile, because I knew that thou art obstinate. Because I knew that thou art obstinate, and thy neck is an iron sinew, and thy brow brass. So God did some things because of their stubbornness. They were, that word obstinate means they were kind of stubborn beyond reason. And then he convicts them later on. Look at verse 5. I have even from the beginning declared it to thee before it came to pass. I showed it to thee. Why? Lest thou shouldest say mine idol hath done them, and mine graven image, and my molten image hath commanded them. So God is still speaking to the Israels and to the Jews in exile, and they're still struggling with some of the same things that they did before they left. He calls them an obstinate people, stubborn beyond reason, and convicts them of giving credit to idols rather than to him. So with respect to Judah... The first product of godlessness that I want to highlight this morning is that of being chastised, disciplined, if you will, and even persecuted by God. But, a cl- but closer to our text here in Ezekiel, go back to Ezekiel. Mark, Mark Isaiah 48. We're going to come back to that. Closer to our text here at hand, notice verse 11 of Ezekiel chapter 37. Then said he unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they. The house of Israel. This is their conclusion. Our bones are dried and our hope is lost. Our bones are dried and our hope is lost. You see, Israel had been reminded many times that God was still their God. We read about that in Jeremiah. You read it about many times during the exile. Israel had been reminded many times that even though they were not in the Holy Land, they were still God's people. Over and over God reminded them of this. But as the time progressed, that 70 years, if you will, the Jews began to self-assess, which is usually a good place to be. We need to self-assess. It's a good start towards revival. But in doing so, in their own self-assessment, they went too far, and their trust in the Word of God began to falter. They struggled with the prophecies of Jeremiah. God said, plant houses and do all these things. I'm, coming, I'm, I'm bringing you back. But now they're, they're struggling with that. More and more they began to believe that they were never going home and that God had ultimately forsaken them despite all the writings they received. In other words, because of the recognition, I, I really want you to get this. I, it took me a while to understand this. Because of the recognition of their own sinful state, many of them concluded that their depravity was beyond hope even for God. Even for God. They said, our bones are dried, our hope is lost. These are God's people. Our hope is lost. So clearly, another very real product of godlessness in God's people is a lack of hope. 
Think about that for a moment. Godlessness among Christians produces a lack of hope. You and I as Christians cannot just live our lives as if there were no God and then expect to maintain a level of hope that is from God. Why would that make any why would that work? If God's words were written to give us an expected end, to give us hope, as Jeremiah talked about, how shall we receive hope if we do not live according to that word? Granted, while every single Jew wasn't a believer, we know this from Romans chapter 9, not all Israel is Israel, but only those who actually believed in the promise, true believers can unfortunately, true believers can unfortunately still find themselves in a very dark place. True believers can live as if they have no hope. You know, after listening or after listening, laying out some of the products of living godly, first, or 2 Peter chapter 1.9 says this, He that lacketh these things. So Peter writes down a whole bunch of things that this is what godly people do. And then he that lacketh those things, he that lacks the products of godliness is blind and cannot see afar off. And this last passage always surprises me every time I read it, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. He forgot about the cross. He forgot about the purging of his own sins. And think about this. He is blind and cannot see afar off. What's the end of Jeremiah talking about? To give us an expected end, to to give us the end, to give us hope. But when we lack godliness in our lives, we have an inability to see afar off. That's the opposite of hope. So even as godly people, we start drifting from the house of God, from the word of God, from living godliness. We're going to come to a point where we ourselves have no hope, and it's hard to see. And we will come to the same conclusion that we're way over here away from God without hope so far that God can't even bring us back. You see, God had given Judah an expected end. He had given them divine reassurance. And what was their response? Our bones are dried, and our hope is lost. But fortunately for Judah and for us, we were created, praise the Lord, by a loving, gracious, and merciful God who is the definition of honor and is the definition of righteousness. Go back to Isaiah 48. Keep your, keep your place there in Ezekiel, but go back to Isaiah 48. In fact, while you're turning there, think of this. as. Chapters 40 through 66 in the book of Isaiah all are written to those in exile. It's the exilic chapters of the book of Isaiah, which includes, and this chapter, of course, includes, it's in those passages. So notice first, I want you to look at verse number one. Hear ye this, O house of Israel, O house of Jacob, rather, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel. Notice that last phrase, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. So they spoke about God, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. God's people. But notice, secondly, God's response in verse 9. For my name's sake, not for your name's sake, For my name's sake will I defer my anger. And for my praise, God says, I will refrain for thee that I cut thee not off. And back in Ezekiel, we see that God is not finished with Judah. 
Yes, their depravity was not something they could remedy. The solution to their sin and the solution to their lack of hope was not found in their power. And it's not found in ours either. It's found only in the power of God. So we see the product of ungodliness that gets us to that depravity of hope, if you will. But then we see in this passage back in Ezekiel chapter 37, we see the power of God in the vision of these dry bones. This is a fascinating passage. I hope, it's a, I hope you're excited to read about these things. But this vision begins with dried bones, decomposed bones, if you will, in a valley. And it concludes with a standing, breathing army of many soldiers. Talk about the power of God. Bones to an exceeding great army. I understand that this is a vision and that Ezekiel was indeed carried away in the spirit. But look at what God is conveying to Ezekiel and to us this morning. Very clearly, we see at least three different aspects of God's power just in this passage. Some one could argue this first one maybe from an inference, but they're all there. First, we see the power of God in His Word, the power in God's words. Just in these 14 verses, the phrase, Thus saith the Lord, or something along those lines, maybe He said unto me, nine times in 14 verses, Thus saith the Lord. In fact, the phrase, Thus saith the Lord, just for some some information or something like that, is used 3,800 times in the Old Testament. 3,800 times. If you spread those usages evenly through every, um, every chapter, it will be four times in every chapter throughout the entire Old Testament. Hebrews 4.12 states that God's Word pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. I know you hear me say that a lot, but it doesn't take away the power of that passage. It doesn't take away the importance of that verse. The Word of God can divide the soul and the spirit the joints and the marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. It can separate, the Word of God in us can separate what we think in our minds and what we know in our hearts. It can put those two, it can separate them. Never underestimate the power of Scripture. Never never get down and realize, I know it's not easy sometimes, you get to it and maybe you're reading through Ezekiel and you get to it and you're like, oh man, I got three chapters of this today. This can change our lives the power of the Word of God. And then look at the text again here, beginning in verse number 4. We see God's command to Ezekiel to prophesy. That word is used seven times in this short passage. So we have, thus saith the Lord, or something like that, nine times. And then seven times God is telling him, or, or Ezekiel is, in fact, prophesying, preaching. In this short passage we see the power of God in preaching. The power of God in preaching. God said to Ezekiel, prophesy. Prophesy upon these bones. Prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man. And then lastly, he told Ezekiel, prophesy to the whole house of Israel. Friends, I know that the world may think differently about what we're doing today. They think differently about what preaching is, about the preaching of the Word of God. But verse 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But what's it unto us? The power of God. The power of God. Right out of the text. For Ezekiel, God taught literal truths for a literal people. And in this we see that when the power of the Word is mixed with the power of preaching, 
the whole valley was shaken in this vision. When they mixed the word with the preaching, he shook the valley and these bones, if you will, started come, coming together. Look at verse 7. As I prophesied, there was a noise. As I preached, there was a noise. And behold, a shaking. And the bones came together, bone to bone. Can you imagine being a fly? I guess you can't say on the wall, but maybe on a cactus or something. Watching, watching these things going on. I'm like, what is going on over there? I remember being back in the military sometimes and coming across uh, out doing some training near some other people doing training. And you hear all this equipment going over there. And you climb up to the top of the hill. And you can hear it, but you can't see any of the equipment. Some of you soldiers know what I'm talking about. And then you put your nods on. Wow, look at all this stuff going on that I had no idea what was going on. So imagine something like that. You're seeing these things, these bones coming together, hip bone to the leg bone. There's another song, right? Maybe, maybe that's to that, you know, and whatever. All these things are coming together. Talk about the power of God. Talk about the power of God. Right before Ezekiel's eyes, God formed an exceeding great army. God was forming a nation through the preaching of his word by God's man. But notice there was something very significant missing, was there not? I like the pause. God didn't have to do that, but there's a pause. He left something out, something missing that God purposely chose by leaving it, by making it another verse, to emphasize. You see, yes, the bones came together, flesh upon muscles, skin, and all that was needed, much like Adam in the Garden of Eden. They just laid there. They had all the organs. They had the brains, the spinal cord, the hearts, but the lungs were empty. There was no life in them. There was no spirit. In so many words, Ezekiel concluded in verse 8 that they were all whole, but there was no life in them. There was no breath in them. And we can conclude from this text like, that, yes, indeed, there is power in the word. And there is power in the preaching. But get this, there is no life without the power of the Spirit. There is no life without the power of the Spirit. We could call this the irreducible complexity of preaching. It must be preaching, it must be from the Word, and it must be in the power of the Spirit. Remember what Jesus told the disciples after the Bread of Life discourse? When all of those but a few left Him, they all forsook Him because of the hard sayings. Jesus said in John 6, 63, it is the Spirit that quickeneth, that giveth life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, 4, that my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Listen, friends, I or you or anybody else can get up here and, and just talk all day long. But if it's not from this word and if it's not preaching and not filled with the Spirit of God, all of us are wasting our time. Amen. And friends, in this vision, if this vision teaches us anything today, it teaches that we are to live godly so that we are not spiritually short-sighted, right, so we can live in hope. We are to believe in the power of the Word of God. We are to believe in the power of the preaching of the Word of God. And we are to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. All of these three things are needed in every believer's lives. You cannot have one without the other. And back in the text, verse 10 sums up the rest of this vision. After his spirit-filled sermon, if you will, Ezekiel stood in the valley 
I wonder where he stood. I wonder if they were all around him. I wonder, how, I wonder if they were all taller than him. I don't know. There he is in this valley with this great, great, exceedingly great army stood there before him, and now they're awake. They have lungs. They're looking at him. Countless numbers. And as impressive and realistic as it may have been, it was, after all, just a vision. And if we can put that reverently, that it's just a vision, if you will, it was a teaching point to Israel, or to Ezekiel, to Israel, and to us. And what was the teaching point? What was the lesson? God, praise God, never, and here clearly in the text, does not leave anything up to private interpretation. He tells us what the vision means. Notice verse 11 again. He said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Later on in this chapter, he talks about how Judah and Israel are going to come together again. But the whole house of Israel, behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore, prophesy unto them, preach unto them, and say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, O my people, this is to Israel, not to the bones anymore. The vision is coming to an end. I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, O my people, twice that phrase is there, and brought you up out of your graves and shall put my spirit in you and ye shall live and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. So we see the product of ungodliness. We see the power of God in the spirit, the word preaching in spirit. And then lastly, we see the promise of grace in this chapter. To be sure, the redemption of Israel, this is clear. We, we had to get a hold of this because this is also true of us. The redemption of Israel has nothing to do with what they deserve and everything to do with the honor and glory of God. Amen. Nothing to do with what they deserve. Remember Isaiah chapter 48, verse 9, where God said, For my name's sake, in verse 4, will I defer mine anger. For my praise I will refrain for thee that I cut thee not off. You see, Israel did not and does not deserve the grace of God. Nor do we, by the way. I mean, think about the key components in this vision. I mean, look at, look at this a bird's eye view, if you will. Israel was likened to dry bones in a forgotten valley. Israel was still alive, mind you. They're still walking around Judah or in Babylon, really, hoping to go back. No hope. And God says they were like dry bones in a forgotten valley. And we can ask the same question that God asked Ezekiel. Son of man, can these bones live? Can they live? So let me ask you this, spiritually speaking, what could Israel do to revive themselves? Could they make themselves alive? They were without hope. They believed that God could even save them. They can do nothing without God. Their conclusion was partially correct. They were without hope. They were spiritually dry, and they were cut off by their own words, but they were not without God, and you and me are also not without God. You see, they had a wonderful promise of grace. For His name's sake, God's reaching out to them, yet don't worry about all those things. Because of who I am, I'm going to redeem you. Because of who I am, not because of who you are. They had a wonderful promise of grace for God's name's sake. Sake, he promised to open their graves 
and bring them back to the promised land. And the most surprising, I think, in the Old Testament, and by far the most significant, is that God promised to put His Spirit in them. Talk about grace. Yes, you've rejected me, you've done all this, but now I'm going to give you a part of me. I'm going to give you the earnest of the Spirit. I'm going to give you a part of the Holy Spirit. Talk about grace. What a promise. Yes, you're doing all these things, but I'm going to put my spirit in your heart one day. I'm going to be down there with you one day. Many students of Scripture believe that this vision is multifaceted. And what I mean by that is that a seed of it was fulfilled when the Jews returned to Babylon. Another part of it was possibly filled when Israel became a nation in 1948. And furthermore, the complete fulfillment is yet to come and is set to occur in the tribulation. And we'll talk about that in a Sunday school when we get there a year and a half from now. (laughs) And while this vision and the unfulfilled prophecies that go along with this vision are distinctly Jewish, without a doubt, there are many applications for us. And we'll talk about a few and then we'll be finished this morning. Because the graves were indeed opened, were they not, at the resurrection of our Savior. And those who are in Christ, those of us here have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Romans 8 9 says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're none of His. And in this mindset, in this this kind of corridor, this vein, if you will, there are at least two applications for us this morning. Granted, we are not Israelites. We are not in Babylon awaiting our return to the Holy Land, and I am most definitely not Ezekiel. If I were a little closer to him, maybe I would just call him Zeke, because it's a whole lot easier to say. But anyway, I'm not him. You're not them. None of us are there. So, but we do have a promise of grace, do we not? We have a promise of grace, even the promise of His indwelling Spirit, which brings eternal life. And the way in which we receive His Spirit is strikingly similar to that of the vision. So the first application is that of salvation. We have a promise applied to us today, a promise of salvation. Notice our comparison to the dry bones. What can we do without Christ? Are we not dead in our sins? Bones just laying in a valley somewhere. Romans 5.12 states that death passed upon all men and that all men have sinned. Just like the dry and decomposed bones of Ezekiel's visions, just like they cannot remedy their lack of life, neither can we. We are dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1 tells us. Oh, but we don't have to stay there, do we? Praise God, He is not willing that any should perish. And through Christ, on the cross, He draws all men, all people, to Himself. How does He does this? I mean, think about it. We know the story. We are, you know that if you, know, you have to be saved, you have to confess your sins and um, believe that Jesus can believe and receive. We, we know all these things. This is not so much a gospel message this morning, but if, if you're here and you're not saved this morning, do not leave this room without knowing for sure that you can put your faith in Jesus Christ, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, and very simply, you're going to be saved. That's very, very clear. But how do we get to that point? Notice the similarities here. Through the power of His Word, through the preaching of His Word, and through the power of His Spirit. The same exact way. And if any of us ever come to the conclusion as Christians that we are too far gone, or even as not Christians, that we are too far gone, we are too wicked, or we are too much in darkness, God can raise the dead. 
He just raised bones to an exceeding great army, and he promised to do something similar to Judah. He created light. He is the author of life. And again, and if God can raise an exceeding great army from dry bones, he can certainly bring life into your darkened soul. Spirit-filled preaching brings life into that which is dead. But unlike these bones in Ezekiel's vision, we must respond. We must respond. With the ability that God graciously gives us, we must respond to the Spirit-filled preaching of His Word. Ephesians 2.8 clearly states that we are saved by grace through faith. And Romans 10.17 tells us how do we get that faith? It comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So in this passage here in Ezekiel, this vision, there is a salvation application, but there is also a sanctification application. In other words, I believe this is also a recipe for revival. I told my wife early on in the week as I was um, praying over chapter 37, I think Monday, maybe even Sunday evening, and I, I, I confessed this to her. And I don't know if I'm there yet, but here's what I, I told her. If I can get a hold of this text, and God can use this text to get a hold of me, revival is inevitable. The same thing is true of every single one of us. If we can get a hold of this concept, revival is inevitable. There is a recipe right here that every church can follow. Remember, the vision was a means to convey a literal meaning, and that literal meaning was for Ezekiel to do what? To go preach unto a people who already belong to God. So think about this application. God can bring revival to Judah who had no hope. If He can do that, He can bring revival to any church on this planet. God, no doubt, is not pleased with us when we live in sin. He is not pleased with us when we are obstinate. He is not pleased with us when we appear to be living right, but in reality we're in deep apostasy. He is not pleased when we don't put Him first, and He is not pleased when we don't put His church first, but for His name's sake He will defer His anger. For His own praise He will refrain for us and not cut us off. He can bring life into that which is dying. And all of us, every church on this planet, if we don't stay in tune with God, we will die. It has to be on fire for the Lord. I know that God promises the existence, the perseverance of His church, but we must always meet the definition of His church. For His own praise, God will bring life into that which is dying through the power of His Word, through the power of preaching, and through the power of His Spirit. Are you ready for revival? Do you want revival? Do you expect revival? We must yearn for it. We must reach for it. We must cry out to God for it through His Word, through the preaching, and beg for the presence of His Holy Spirit. Listen, don't be a product of ungodly living. Choose to serve Christ. Choose to hope. Believe in the power of God and trust in the promise of His grace. And if for no other reason than to follow God's own example, do all of that for His name's sake. Let's go to the Lord. In prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you. Lord, we stand here today. I stand here. Lord, all of us are here. Lord, we know and we readily admit that we do not deserve your grace. Lord, but we know and also believe that we have a loving God who sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to die on an old rugged cross for us. Lord, to bear our sin debt, to become our sin debt, to pay it, to wipe it out of the way forevermore. 
that we can no longer be a slave to sin, but a servant of righteousness. Lord, we can. Lord, help us to not live ungodly. Help us to not lose hope. And let us yield to your word, to your preaching, and to your spirit. Lord, revive us today. Send us a fire in our bones, Lord. Rekindle what's in us, Lord, that's dimming, that's dying. And Lord, Lord, as we approach this, this VBS, Lord, for all these children, Lord, help us do so with a heart full of your power, with a heart yielded to you completely, Lord. And we thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Amen.